sing the praises of soft skills, and learn about the dangers of drones. Welcome to another episode of the Security Management Highlights podcast from ASIS International. Every month we focus on the trends and topics the world needs to know about your world of keeping information and people safe. I am your host, Brendan Howard, and today we talk to security professionals about an evergreen topic and a very timely topic. First, Kevin Jones, CPP, talks up soft skills in his transition from law enforcement to school protection. Then, Andish Noise, CPP, takes up that banner and explains what he says was the crucial soft skill in his career trajectory from law enforcement through George Lucas's Skywalker Sound to his new job at a museum. And finally, Bill Edwards, CPP PCI, tells us about how a publicized evolving battlefield threat, drones, presents dangers to buildings and events anywhere. But first, Kevin Jones, CPP, School Protection Officer for Branson Public School District in Missouri. I asked him his perspective, coming from law enforcement and crisis and hostage negotiation into school protection, whether soft skills are under or overemphasized. Is the balance between technical and non-technical right right now? He says soft skills are emphasized a lot in security he's seen, but he's not sure everybody's clear on what exactly that training looks like. The security managers want these soft skills, except they don't know exactly what they want. And I say that because <laughs> they don't know they don't know what they don't know, I guess. So I don't think a lot of these skills and trainings were afforded to security uh, companies and security personnel um, bef- you know, until maybe even recently, and maybe even still isn't now. And I don't think, you know, a lot of them without the law enforcement side of the experience and lengthy law enforcement experience know that some of this stuff is out there. So these managers really want um, these soft skills. And in some cases, you know, they might say, hey, we want a soft skill communication, you know, like I wrote this article on, but they don't even really know what that means other than, hey, you know, we want good communicators. Well, what does that mean? And it takes practice and in some cases takes training and it needs to be uh, something that's integrated into everyday functionality. I feel like it doesn't have to be, but I think when people are talking about soft skills, they also say so talk about communication. They also talk about emotional intelligence. And I know what's really big with emotional intelligence is that the very first skill is sort of self-understanding and emotional regulation. And so I think what we're talking about is knowing what aggravates you is a first step to figuring out how to talk to people. But I feel like when they break up soft skills, sometimes the soft skills stuff, it's like um, touchy-feely emotional intelligence, knowing what triggers you and knowing what triggers other people to try to listen better and be a better communicator that way. And another way is tactics. Don't say things this way, say them that way. And so from your perspective, do you see those things woven together or do you think they're kind of broken up into some of the stuff teaches you how to understand yourself and other people better and other stuff teaches you the tricks about how you're not supposed to phrase it this way. You're supposed to phrase it that way. You know, I got a couple of things to say on that actually. So one is, yeah, I, I kind of agree that some of the soft skills are things like emotional intelligence. However, I think that's a pretty broad Hey, does this person have high emotional intelligence? You know, and I've been through tons of formal education, you know, my master's program, uh, as well as law enforcement training. We talk about emotional intelligence and, you know, and empathy and stuff like that. And those are extremely important. And they're not, you know, I think, I think there's 
a huge emphasis on them. And I think there needs to be on understanding what empathy is. I think that sometimes leaders miss the boat on what should be happening and how you are empathetic. So doesn't mean, you know, just because I understand your situation and I have empathy for you doesn't mean that that person gets their way or doesn't always mean that there's a de-escalation because sometimes that's just not possible. And I'll give you an example of what you said where, you know, we talked about different words and phrases that, you know, I have this, you know, article written on communication. Um, and one of the things I think I touch in there, I've talked a lot about before, if you read the book, if you open up hostage negotiators handbooks, they're going to tell you never say, okay, I've been through tons of, <laughs> tons of crisis, tons of crisis training and something that, you know, as you and I talk and you're going to hear, you know, and you're going to say, okay, okay. And ultimately that tells you I'm engaged in our conversation. Right. Um, um, hey, okay. I, I've heard what you said, or I'm listening to what you had to say. Right. You know, I'm still here, you know, things of that nature. It's, it, it can also be, you know, an article, it could also almost be a minimal encourager saying, uh, you know, okay, okay, type thing. By the book and in trainings, they always do this. This, when you say, okay, if somebody says, I'm having a hard time, or my wife left me, or, um, you know, I have this mental health problem and you say, okay, then the training aspect is always to, to bite the person that's training and say, oh, it's not okay. Right. You know, like you never, never tell people it's okay. Cause you don't understand. Okay. Uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, um, what we find out is when you apply this to like real world is that people say, okay, when they talk and communicate, that's how people talk. And when you're talking to somebody that's in crisis or you're talking to somebody and you're communicating with somebody, no matter what level of communication you're having, I don't think your boss wants to wants to be a, a robot if you're communicating via email or in person. And a person that's having a hard time doesn't want you to be a robot and just read verbatim from a textbook. They want you to engage with them like you're a real person. And people really use the word okay on a regular basis. That's interesting. Do you think the emphasis on the comfort level with kind of breaking things out into systems and having technical rules, one thing or another thing sort of leaks its way into communication, whereas there's kind of a more gray area world of you're trying to be authentic and you're trying to be empathetic and there's not kind of a one size fits all way to communicate that? I definitely don't think there's a one size fits all. Everybody communicates differently and, you know, if you put 10 negotiators in the same scenario, they're going to all communicate completely different uh, from each other and just how their style is, what their experience level is. I think it's a hindrance and I'm not, and I'm you know, don't definitely don't take me wrong when I say this is when I say sure. policy sometimes is a hindrance is when you will say this, or you should say this, or you, you know, sometimes these policies or manuals are written by people who don't haven't put things into practice. And sometimes these, People have a mis you know, miscommunication, uh, a misunderstanding of how it should be put into practice. So, you know, it's easy to say that never say okay, don't say no, never be the first to offer something <laughs> to to negotiate with. Those are just not how the real world, you know, things that how the real world works. It 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 works differently, and people communicate by saying okay or uh huh, and that lets them know that I'm engaged. Um, if they get upset with you. By doing that, then you can always say, Hey, I apologize. I'm just trying to listen to your story. And I want you to know that I'm listening, you know, that I haven't left yet. 
So, you know, you can, you can always fix that if somebody does bite you on that. But I think it's pretty rare that somebody gets upset when you're, they're telling you a story and you say, okay, um, that would happen, you know, type thing, or, okay, I'm listening to you. And they're happy that somebody's listening to you. They're starting to deescalate. They're starting to communicate with you more because that because you are listening and not just standing there doing nothing or just silent on the phone. If someone really enjoys the technical aspects of security, and that's why they're in security, do you ever find that people do learn to love picking up information about communication and soft skills as much as the technical? Or does it tend to be, ah, it's just something you just have to do because it's going to smooth certain things and you have to be good at it, even though you don't really like it? Or do people, do you see people sort of bloom and blossom and like they like both aspects? I think both. I think, I mean, I've certainly been in class classes. I went to a mediation class one time and it was a great class. Yeah. Um, and it was a class on non-criminal, non-violent scenarios, but two people just aren't getting along. But you could definitely tell there were people in this class that were forced to be there. It's something you have to do. I don't want to do this. You know, the thing that I've said for the last, you know, two decades of my life is that the more often, you know, more often you're going to use your pen and paper and your radio more than any other tool that you carry. So you, you know, which are all communication tools that you, you know, just explain the things that you use most often. Um, so no one, you know, one had to write, no one had to read, knowing how to communicate via phone or email is extremely important. Um, so it's not just something, you know, even if you have to do it, you know, I would suggest learning how to do it well. Um, as far as some people want to want to do it, absolutely. I know people that love, you know, uh, the communication soft skill aspect or soft skills in general. You know, when it comes to some of the, you know, the threat assessment investigatory stuff that I've done, that is one of those communication, you know, when you're interviewing somebody, it's one of those communications that you're, you know, I'm wanting to learn more about this person or learn more about what's going on with them. And you have to, you're going to have to want to do some of it to get better. You definitely have to do it, want to do it to get better. But you, I would hopefully you'd want to do it just to better yourself as a person, but also better yourself as a security uh, specialist or a security manager. Okay, I'm listening. Okay, so okay is not off the table. So what soft skill really helped on Dish Noise CPP as he moved from, and don't get lost on me, law enforcement to loss prevention to a gigantic Sony flagship store to a big museum and to big entertainment and then back to a museum as head of security and safety at the Honolulu Museum of Art. Let's find out. It was actually introduced to me. I came out of law enforcement after being injured after 12 years driving a patrol car. And the first mentor I had was a loss prevention security manager who had been in it for years and years and years. And his advice to me, first of all, was learn, you know, learn the language of business. And I think that's an obvious one that a lot of us uh, are now or take for granted, essentially, that there is a different language when you come from a law enforcement or a military background. But the next best and the one that I've used most often in my in my career has been the ability to question things and be curious. Curiosity has really kind of sprung me to each opportunity as as they've presented themselves. And I mean, curiosity in a very broad sense that if an opportunity is presented to you, 
ask questions about it, be curious about it, and don't dismiss it just because it's not necessarily in your field. You know, in accepting an additional duty of property management, I knew nothing about property management, but I saw it as an opportunity. I was curious about it. I learned about it. And it just, it actually exploded the ability to grow in that position. If you're given new things, oftentimes, sometimes people can be excited and curious about it. I know another way people in the workplace can respond is defensive. Like, I already have too many things to do. This new opportunity for growth is an opportunity, but it's also a hassle because I already have a bunch of stuff that I already know how to do that I have to do in my regular job. In your head, it sounds like, well, I was just kind of a curious person. For people that do not find themselves being excited about that next step up or afraid of taking it on because they don't know anything about it, I don't know. What do you tell people? Well, everybody's in charge of their own career, first of all. I mean, I think that, you know, in a lot of corporations, I've seen colleagues who who expect human resources to be in charge of their career and develop the path for them. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's it's just not the way it is, right? You have to be responsible for your own career. And, you know, honestly, I if you're not curious, if you're not uh, wanting to take on something more or look at something bigger and broader, that's okay. You know, just do what you do really, really well then. I think it still comes down to communication, though. You know, if, if you are presented that opportunity, make sure you're clear on, on how you're going to respond to it in terms of why you're not going to take it or why you're you're not at this time going to look at it. Um, just be really clear. Be clear with yourself, I think, is the most important thing. Communicating with people within a business setting and communicating with them in the language that they understand is just incredibly important. Is there something, if you think back either to your most recent switch in career or another switch in career, or you mentioned kind of a mentoring you got when I had to jump out of law enforcement into something else, there was somebody there kind of helped me into a new arena. What were the kinds of soft skills or what were the skills that were talked about by people as you move from place to place that you thought, oh, I haven't really focused on that? Is there anything besides curiosity and, you know, better communication? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, honestly, I had to go back to the hard skills first. You know, when I came out <laughs> of law enforcement, hey, you know, truthfully, I came out of law enforcement, I didn't know how to budget. We didn't budget. I drove a patrol car, you know. And so learning the skills of business in that way is the first step, but you got to lay that foundation first. From that foundation, I think it becomes about your ability to build relationships with people. And, you know, some of that is emotional intelligence. Some of that is just, you know, is just observation. Some of it is pulling from your own history. Um, and I think that what I found in going from place to place to place is that the people are always different. The work is similar. And really, in order to be successful, the, the thing that really does that is your ability to ultimately deliver the product, whatever that product is in, in security and in whatever you know, silo of security that might be, um, is to deliver that product in the context of that culture of that company. And that is where I think success or failure is is made. I mean, I can go into the museum as I am now. I've been in museums before. I have used certain strategies in those cultures that would absolutely flop in this current culture. Okay. In my previous job working in a, you know, working in an entertainment industry and working for Skywalker and, and I had to deliver the product in a completely different way. In that atmosphere, security is seen more as a roadblock than it is a business enabler, whereas museums is the other way around. You know, you are the business enabler. You are what allows people to come in and look at artwork and, and do it in a safe and a secure manner. So the adjustments that you have to make is really about being sensitive to the culture of the, the organization that you're part of 
And, you know, again, that's that's about questioning. That's about analysis. That's about building relationships. Is that so that that difference example you gave? So working in entertainment, these are people who are making a final product and whatever security protocols you set up or whatever safety things you're setting up are slowing them down or annoying them along the way as they try to create this experience or create a movie, create a book, create a whatever, an event. And in the museum, you're saying they're much more, it's mentally, they're thinking more about protecting the things. Even if they want to be open to the public, they right from the get-go have more of a thought that safety and security are essential, whereas the other ones are like, we have to have you, but when you encounter us, we're not going to be happy about whatever you're asking us to do. It's, it's like you were there, Brendan. <laughs> you know, it, it is It is very true. And, and I think that it wasn't always that way. You know, certainly it got better over the course of time. But but in the beginning, it was definitely in a creative environment like entertainment production. Uh, any security thing you do will slow down the process, at least in the minds of the artists and the creative folks. And although it is grudgingly acknowledged that there needs to be security, or you know, I'm talking years ago at this point. So let's let's kind of separate this because today I think right. security is a huge focus in the entertainment industry, and I think that it's much more accepted. But when I started, it was definitely still kind of the old pirate ship, right? Where where everybody was doing their own thing and, and they were just getting things done in a very quick manner, but not necessarily in the most secure manner. So overcoming that obstacle in that culture was about really building those relationships and then explaining to people how you don't have to slow things down. You just have to come at it at a slightly different angle. Whereas to your point in a museum, the whole point of the artwork is to be accessible to everyone. And what that means is if it gets damaged or if something happens to it on the first day of an exhibition, it is no longer accessible to everyone. It is gone. We've removed it or it's been removed in some way. And therefore the mission is completely sidetracked. So in a museum, security and safety of the artwork or the exhibition or the people coming is actually a paramount concern. Okay. And I'm curious, when I talk a lot, when I talk to people about soft skills, I think there's a lot of like, you're going to have to learn this. You're going to have to learn that. These are things you have to do. I'm wondering from your perspective in the different jobs you took with their different cultures, how much of your wanting to stay at a place was because you internally felt a kind of kinship with the people you were working with, even if they weren't in security, they kind of, something about them, they spoke your language, you shared their values. How important do you think it is when you talk to people who are in corporate security that they share the values of the company they work for and that that feels really good to do that? Or can you kind of do security anywhere and it doesn't matter what you're doing? Well, that's uh, that's a great question. And I think that the answer could be uh, a little of both. I think that in your beginning of your career, most people are just trying to get a job. Most people are just trying to get that foundational experience in a place. So I don't know that values and alignment really are all that important in the beginning. I mean, if you, if you wind up in a place that happens to have all that, then good for you. I mean, right. that, that's great. That is, that's kind of like Holy grail. Right. But if you are working through the grind, the first couple of jobs are probably just doing security and getting that foundational experience. But then I think it's incredibly important that you find yourself aligned with an organization. If you're going to stay long-term, you know, there's this thing in the tech industry where people jump two to three years, they're in onto the next one, onto the next startup, onto the next startup. And, and there's some value in that, in that industry. I don't think it's the same in the security, traditional security industry. I think that uh, stability, I think that long-term thinking and planning and focus is important. And the only way really to do that is in an organization that you're aligned with. So I, my last job was 20 years. 
I was there. And I left because I think it was healthy for the organization at some point to get new blood and new new vision and new kind of attitude and, and a fresh mindset to come in. I'm very proud of what I did. And to find the museum, the museum that I'm at now, further extends the the fact of looking for a, a industry that I am aligned with and that I feel really good about. I started, you know, essentially started my career in museums and I'm now uh, in a museum again for the third time. And it is a, it's a culture, it's an atmosphere, it's people that I really enjoy being around and learning from. So if you're new to security, don't despair if the first or second job is not a perfect fit. Learn company culture and soft skills and business knowledge, but think about what feels right to you too. Maybe you'll be the next security guy at Skywalker Sound. Okay, now for a shift in topic from soft skills to drones. UAS unmanned aircraft systems are being controlled from remote locations on the ground and playing a role in today's battlefields. But the cost of drones, as you know, has fallen, so both curious hobbyists and bad actors have increased. So for security professionals, where is the most obvious risk? Bill Edwards, CPP, PCI, is president of federal and public safety at Building Intelligence, and he explains. If we look at it from a, from a perspective of where does the public gather? So mass okay. gathering venues should be a priority for a extension of the physical security perimeter into the air domain because there is access to those facilities via an open air environment. And I use the examples of concerts, open air stadiums, even arenas should think about this as part of the exterior to the arena, as people are gathering, um, as people are waiting in line for ticketing, uh, as people are waiting in line to enter, all of those scenarios. Anytime, uh, you know, parades are another example. Anytime the, the public gathers in mass, those security directors, pro professionals should be looking at the air domain as part of their overarching security program. And it can be an addendum or an addition to the threat vulnerability risk assessment that that every business should have as their foundational product. So, you know, taking into account of the methodology, it's that it's that foundational risk assessment. And in this case, it's really good to get a technology involved that can detect and really do an error reconnaissance or in, and provide a pattern of analysis of really what's happening. Um, I want to go back really quick to to what happened. You know, how did this all evolve? Yeah. If we look at the conflict zones over the last um, 10 years or, or so, we're seeing the small UAS platform really start to play a major role in conflict zones and war zones across the globe. And when I talk about the small UAS platform, I should be uh, more concise. We're talking about drones in category one and two, drones that you can simply buy off of the internet, okay. drones that are, are built and sold commercially. These are the new uh, drones that are involved in conflict zones that have started to change warfare. Not only that, but they're starting to change society as a whole as well. And so as we look at this, really this convergence, we've got to pay attention from a security perspective in private sector that our mass gathering events are very vulnerable, but also our critical infrastructure is very vulnerable. And those are two things I think if we talk about the evolution of these platforms, it's really important. 
Remember, the commercial platform came to market in uh, 2010. So it's only 13 years in maturity and we're already seeing very advanced systems on our uh, favorite websites for purchase. Is there, so some of the things we're seeing again in uh, military conflicts around the world, we're seeing them used, they're being used as carriers of munitions, as well as gathering information. Is the biggest worry that there are terrorist acts, weapons or, or bombs or other offensive things are brought into a location by the drones, or that these drones are going to be primarily used as intelligence gathering? Well, I mean, I think it, I think it's a combination of all of it. And, okay. and one thing we're not, you know, we should mention too, is that they're a cyber risk as well. So if you think in terms of intelligence or information gathering, these platforms are designed to do that perfectly. They carry payloads of very advanced cameras. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing we've learned from the conflict zones is that these drones are easily converted or configured to deliver uh, weapons. And it could be it could be a munition, it could be uh, a chemical, it could be anything nefarious um, because the payloads uh, can be configured to do that. The most uh, important thing we've seen in conflict zones recently on the small UAS platform is the concept of first person view strikes or targeting. That's where an operator is in goggles and can fly the drone precision with precision into a target and detonate on that target. We've seen this in the Ukraine-Russian war, and we're definitely going to see this in uh, the Israeli-Hamas war. Um, so this is where the small UAS platform, the category one and two, has really come, come to its own. The third thing I mentioned was cyber. These platforms uh, have capability. If they have uh, small compute devices built on them called Raspberry Pi, they can spoof Wi-Fi networks and uh, actually try to gain data or gain access to data. So we need to take, take a, these small platforms in, into um, consideration for those three things, information gathering, weapons delivery, and cyber attack. And when it comes to fighting drones, is it drone versus drone or are people who are setting up protection against drones from, from the outside, are they using non-drone technology to do this? Okay, so it's a, a great question about technology. The market itself, um, and we can get into a little bit of what's legal and what isn't legal, um, but the market itself is really broken into um, four categories. You have drone makers, uh, companies that build drones and sell drones. You have companies that provide a detection capability for detection, monitoring, and visualization. You have companies that build counter uncrewed aerial system technologies. Those are, those are technologies that mitigate the risk of the drone. Okay. And then you have uh, companies that sell education, training, and um, uh, in general knowledge about the, the drone market. I guess the fifth thing I'll say is, so there should be five categories, is there are also drones as a security service where drones can be implemented into the program to support a security professional on their mission. But really, when you talk about drone detection and monitoring, those are capabilities using radio frequency, radar, or optical cameras, and sometimes acoustic microphones to try to detect a small drone in flight, which is a very complex mission. Uh, it's a very complex operation. A lot of it is often downplayed by the market that it's, you know, we can do this with, with RF only. And what I've been advocating uh, for to security professionals over the last several years is that 
a true uh, detection and monitoring and visualization capability has to be a layered sensor package, which means you have to have RF, radar, optical, and acoustic all working together for you in order to really find out where that drone's at, what uh, direction it's traveling in, and even if it has a payload. Now, when we get into count, counter uncrewed aerial technologies, we're talking about technologies that can physically disrupt the drone in its flight which I need to mention is illegal in the United States unless it's associated with critical infrastructure, Department of Defense, or Department of Homeland Security, SEER, one through five events, special events. And so those technologies can only be used if they've been requested and approved through the Homeland Department. But I saw a quote recently by the director of security uh, for the NFL where she stated that there were a hundred, there have been 121,000 requests for counter UAS support since 2018, I believe, and only 77 have been approved. Wow. So that tells you that we're still working our way through legislation and law, but also the delegation of authority on who can do counter UAS operations. That's right, folks. In most cases, you cannot just go outside and shoot down a drone. But you probably already knew that. And that is it for the latest episode of Security Management Highlights. Thanks to our guests, Kevin Jones, CPP, Andish Noy, CPP, and Bill Edwards, CPP, PCI. If you're interested in reading more about these topics, check out the links in the show notes. And if you got excited about something here, share this with your friends inside and outside of security management because the world needs to know how vital and awesome this field is. And leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. We would really appreciate it. Find us at sm.asisonline.org. And hey, be safe out there.